I'm Don Ennis. I'm Carly Chardonnay-Webb. And you're in the Transporter Room. On our new day, we are going to be on Wednesdays. Every other Wednesday, we're going to beam up a different guest. We're excited about this new opportunity to reach more listeners and to do fewer podcasts. <laughs> I'm just a very busy girl. So I'm excited about the idea that, you know, a little bit less sometimes is a little bit more. You know what I mean, Carly? Yes, I know what you mean. I mean, it's been a busy it's been a busy week for me too, especially after coming back from Pride on the Court down at Sarah Lawrence College. Oh, it was in, exciting. Um, in Metro New York, it was great. Oh, it in, was in it was great. And yeah. the other thing it's a little bit less of, we have one less anti-transgender bill. South Dakota finally came to its senses and they are no longer pursuing this bill that would criminalize transgender care. However, you know, I read a little something, a little something, something in New Now Next by Kate Sosen. They wrote that this bill could still come back if the actual legislator decides to override the committee that killed the bill. Can you believe that? Well, that's one of the quirks of the system of checks and balances, I suppose. But I, we always have to be on guard for bills like this coming back. It's just it's just coin of the realm. But. I think because of the national and in some ways global backlash, I mean, this story has not just has not just been in focus here in the United States, especially it's been in focus in the UK. Um, even mermaids fired off in the UK, fired off a press release condemning this bill because they're worried about the same thing happening in this current Tory government. To me, it may come back, but I'll tell you, Libby Scarn and the folks at, a uh, at ACLU South Dakota, they're on top of it. And of course, you know, you know, our good, you know, our good friend and mighty warrior Tra Chase Strangio is going to be all over it if they try to bring it back. I, I don't see this bill making the light of day again for quite some time. And if they well, do, they're going to they're cruising for another defeat. And we still have dozens of other states all across the country that are still targeting both transgender uh, student athletes and transgender people itself. So the battle is not yet won. Um, and we still have an election in November, which we, oh, I don't want and, to think about. And that. one of those states is one of those states that have such laws that they're pondering is the student athlete law bill being debated in New Hampshire. And today is the New Hampshire primary. That's right. And when we record this, it's Tuesday. But the day people listen to this is Wednesday. And you know what Wednesday is? Wednesday is pitchers and catchers report. My favorite the groundhog, day in the calendar. The groundhog has seen his shadow. For me, it's a <laughs> for me, it's a close, it's a close second to Supra to Supra's Camaros and Mustangs report to Daytona. But it feels the same way. Spring is coming. So let's set coordinates for a little city I think you know. Bristol, Connecticut, home of ESPN. Our guest this week, baseball expert, co-founder of Baseball Prospectus, Christina Carl. Come on into the transporter room. Dun, 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 dun. Well, hello, ladies. I can't make the great, like, you know, doo -doo 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 sound, but uh, for beaming <laughs> up or beaming in. I don't want to turn this into Wayne's World. <sighs> we are so excited to talk to you. Now, first of all, let me just get something out of the way. You shared something on Twitter yesterday that I might not have seen otherwise about Major League Baseball concocting a brand new way in 2021 or 2022 to look at the postseason, which for me completely invalidates the whole idea of having a season in the first place. 
Can you walk us through these proposed changes and what you think about them? Well, I think the idea of <clears throat> expanding the playoffs is, I guess, to be generous, one way of um, adding relevance to a greater number of teams. So the idea of expanding the playoff field in both leagues to seven teams in each league, with the teams that with the best record in each league getting a first round bye, and then the six other teams but getting paired up. So two division champs, the number one wild card would get to then pick their opponents from among the other three teams, which sounds, um, as some people have mentioned, very bachelor-esque um, as far as uh, programming. But um, And it's something that I think everybody agrees the teams would hate to do. Um, because you're automatically showing up your opponent if you say, like, if you're the n- number two team, number best, second best record in your league, and then you say, well, I'm going to pick the that team because we think we can beat them. That's showing them up. That's instant, like, clubhouse fodder. That's instantly a great way of basically guaranteeing that the baseball gods will frown on you and you will lose, and then you will be humiliated in the whole process seems to be about daring somebody to be humiliated one way or another. So not fun from a baseball or baseball mindset perspective, Um, but you get 14 out of 30 teams into the postseason, so it almost sounds like, you know, what the NBA does every year with half the league going into the playoffs, and that, um, I mean, I don't know. Speaking as a, you know, browbeaten Sacramento Kings fan, that eighth playoff seed in the NBA Western Conference, always looking so tasty every year because that's the goal that they can't attain year after year, but try. Um, so it's kind of pathetic. Uh, so those kind of like, you know, middle class aspirational goals to go get crushed in the playoffs, I guess, become more attainable for, you know, a huge collection of teams. And. Yeah, it just, it isn't fun. I mean, it's, it's, I understand what the commissioner is trying for here in terms of floating this particular lead balloon, but it's not really the way to inspire interest. Now, I understand the idea that um, maybe you shorten the regular season. Nobody needs an extra week of Detroit Tigers games right now. Nobody needs another (laughs) week of seeing the Baltimore Orioles get annihilated by the Yankees by double-digit scores night after night. Um, So, yeah, I guess, you know, if you shorten the season, created a three-game wild card initial round for those six playoff teams that have to play each other in each league, I kind of like that as a structure. The idea that instead of the one-game play-in game, that the wild card game as it's currently configured – that kind of cheapens the value of the regular season. I also am kind of sympathetic to the idea that, yeah, maybe maybe 150 for going back to 150 to 154 games in the regular season to make sure that the baseball season is actually played entirely in October. I'm, I'm a little sympathetic to that as well. And I'm sympathetic, really sympathetic to a whole lot less Detroit Tigers baseball. But <laughs> that said... You know, this isn't the greatest idea that they could come up with. I, I think it was a trial balloon they floated. Um, they'll see the it's an overwhelmingly unpopular. and But then they'll also find out, I think, how much sympathy there is for changing things up a little. And I'm all for changing things up a little bit, like maybe having the Mets win once in a while. Um, 
I just think that the idea of picking your opponents just why does it bring me back to to grade school in the gym and where I feel like it's between me, the kid with no arms and legs, and the dead kid who's going to get picked next? Well, I mean, look at it this way: is no matter how hard they want it, they can't pick the Marlin. So you know, it's just <laughs> kind of. I mean, you know, you don't get a they can't pick my team. We're not making the playoffs anytime yeah, it, soon. <laughs> but yeah, it's it it was kind of a weird I think maybe again, because it's so over the top, like weird like I said, I think it's it's almost kind of like a test just to see what kind of response they get and what people would like. And if it actually as an exercise, as a thought exercise, then generates conversation about a slightly shorter regular season, a three-game wild card round. I, I kind of like that. And I could see, you know, even if we get to six playoff teams per league, I'm, I'm not against that even. It's just as structured now, and I think, Don, you were right to identify that it's the picking of teams, it's the, the you know, weird reality show prop, prop aspect of the proposal that's just sort of like, yeah, I... I I'm not buying it. So that makes two of us. But then again, I hated the I hated the fact that they expanded playoffs in the first place. I'm I'll admit to being an old school high bound traditionalist. I want to see it go back to two divisions: east, east, west. ALCS starts. AL and NLCS starts right after the season. We get a World Series, and this thing's done by Halloween. Never I don't gonna happen. I, I know. I know it's never going to happen. But I don't want to see a Mister December. I'm still wrapping my head around a Mr. November. This, this is going to open the door to Mr. Christmas at the World Series. I mean, can you imagine somebody, George Springer becomes Mr. December in a few years' time? I don't want to see that. But, but Christina, one thing I do want to point out, there's another thing you've been kind of in the Twitter, Twitter sphere about. I see, the, I see that the specter of Pete Rose has risen up again, and you had some strong feelings on that. Well, she votes, in the, she votes in Cooperstown. I mean, she should yeah. have feelings. I, I do have, you know, pretty strong feelings about this, but that's only because he's guilty. And so <laughs> it's not, for, I mean, this is one of these conversations like we had it 30 years ago, 31 years ago. He was guilty. The evidence was revealed. He's still guilty. Nothing has changed. He is still the person who did all of these things, who lied about it and trashed baseball for for the first 15 years basically doing anything he could do in his pit, his 15-year-long self-pity party that everybody was invited to as long as they paid, gave Pete Rose a couple of bucks, and then finally wrote his book where he acknowledged that, oh, yeah, no, I've been lying about most of that all of this time. He's still lying about like betting as a player, which is another part of Rule 21 that he violated. So, you know, I'm just sort of like, I'm still... You know, there is absolutely nothing about Pete Rose's case that should change any of our minds. So this idea that we should basically indulge this exercise in whataboutism where we look at, like, contemporary situations, whether you want to talk about the Red Sox or the Astros and the cheating scandals there, and it's like, well, we haven't hurt people who did that enough. So doesn't that allow us to then somehow resurrect Pete Rose's still get guilty status and say, let's make ourselves feel good and forgive that guy for reasons that, again, just it's, a, it's an exercise in what, it is, what about ism that doesn't make any sense whatsoever. And 
it's just kind of this generational stupidity where we're kind of inflating Pete Rose or Pete Rose is insinuating himself into the conversation and Pete Rose doesn't matter. He's still guilty. It's done. We're still done. Why are we even going back here and doing this again? Because unfortunately, you know, again, a generation of baseball fans that loved Pete Rose, a generation of, shall we say, generally older white dudes who really loved Pete Rose's kids and who want to continue to burnish that part of their childhood or their being young adults or when they were cool and when they had a full head of hair, whatever. I don't care. I don't care about respecting their childhood or their need to like basically worship at the altar of their childhood. I'm really, as a reporter and as an analyst, only interested in the facts. And the facts are Pete Rose is guilty and we should be done. The only person who took Pete Rose out of the Hall of Fame conversation is Pete Rose. If you want to be angry at anybody, be angry at him. I tell you, I read one of the articles about Charlie Hustle, and it really struck me that he is in denial because he was. this writer was talking about how when Pete Rose didn't bet, even that was a signal to the bookies that there was something that they should bet or bet against. He was just part of the system back then by being a participant that he's just refusing to acknowledge of how he affected baseball. And um, to me, uh, I'm, I'm just, I'm shocked that what about him has become this national pastime now, um, you know, in politics, in our culture, there seems to be always an argument of boat boat, you know, and I, whatever happened to decency and morality, I guess that was something that my parents grew up with that we don't get to enjoy. Well, it's also kind of ridiculous in the level of the extent to which Pete has lied about so many things for so long that a huge segment of the audience still doesn't get that he lied about betting while he was a player. A huge segment of the audience has conveniently dropped down a memory hole, like Pete confessing to um, statutory rape. Yeah. Now you brought a up segment the, of the uh, audience. Yeah. A huge segment of the audience has forgotten that you know there are entirely credible stories about whether or not Pete was involved in cocaine distribution. I mean, this is not a good guy. This is not some poor old ball player who's just been, you know, like treated harshly by a system of like inflexible justice. No, it's a guy who did a lot of evil stuff. He was also a really good baseball player, but let's not pretend that, you know, the gambling is the only problem we have with Pete Rose. It's the reason he's suspended, but, you know, why are we bending over backwards to give this guy, you know, airtime, reconsideration, any of that on his mm. terms. Mm -hmm. Well, you brought up two things that make me think. Um, I do want to hear more about the, the, the uh, cheating scandal. But first, I, I got to understand, how is it that they didn't put Schilling in the uh, Hall of Fame this year? I thought for sure he'd get in. And I'm so glad he didn't because of how he talked about our community. And I'm just wondering what your thoughts were on Kirk Schilling. Well, I can't. For perhaps obvious reasons, I can't go into great detail there, but um, I think instead let's, let's look ahead to the future and consider the fact that, and consider the ballot, that we're probably looking at a situation where Kurt Schilling could make the Hall of Fame by himself next year. And, <clears throat> well, I mean, you know, just think about July of 2021, where the country may be. Either way, um, it's going to be a spectacle, and it's going to be something that 
um, I think we should just acknowledge and embrace or embrace ourselves for the likelihood that that's what we're going to have, and that you know if Cooperstown in 2021 ends up looking like a Klan rally, well, don't be surprised. I mean, it's just one of those unfortunate, unfortunate phenomena that I think we have to acknowledge and anticipate. Just like we have to acknowledge that there's always been sign stealing in baseball. It's just a matter of how far you go. Is that the truth? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I, I think clearly this was a situation where, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't want to call it mission creep, but, um, <laughs> you know, just because a thing is possible doesn't mean you should do it. Um, and you, nobody seemed to in that room to have asked, you know, not why or how, but should we do this? And unfortunately, it looks like an awful lot of people in the Astros who may or may not have been influenced by McKinsey culture, um, corporate culture, uh, that they uh, they didn't really step back and think, you know, maybe we shouldn't go here. Maybe we shouldn't do this. Um, we know that they did it. I think a substantive analysis remains to be done about, um, I mean, we, we can look at some of the great stuff that's already been done. Uh, the one Astros fan site uh, that the URL is I'm blanking on at the moment um, that really shows like the 58 televised games that um, that he had access to that, you know, breaking down every single trash can bang and every single instance when, you know, the Astros took advantage of it, which batters were taking particular advantage of it. Um, and to what extent, you know, those infected individual outcomes. I am sure that it won't be very much longer before, you know, somebody has kind of sat down and calculated, like, you know, a measurable question over how much impact those signals might have had on likely outcomes and created a forecast of, like, potentially how much run value the Astros generated from this cheating scandal or from the sign stealing and signaling. But that's where, you know, it's going to be speculative. A part of it is going to be always going to be speculative because, you know, I mean, I'm sympathetic to Mike Balsinger, who is now one of the pitchers who was sent down after getting crushed by the Astros while they were using the signals, um, has now started a suit saying that, you know, effectively his career and his livelihood was destroyed by the Astros cheating. I'm sympathetic to that suit, but <clears throat> it is important to remember Mike Bolsinger wasn't very good in the first place. So whether or not Mike Bolsinger's career was ended by the Astros cheating, as an example, because a number of players of, I think Mike Clevenger of the Indians had a particularly good like television segment where he talked about how the Astros doing this takes, you know, bread out of people's mouths, cost people their careers. That's the right sensibility. It's just it's whether or not in terms of in the broad strokes, it's whether concretely we can say that this is what destroyed, you know, what was left of Mike Bolsinger's career as a you know kind of bump guy, fifth starter. And so while his suit may not benefit him particularly, I think the interesting element there is whether or not in trial and discovery we get even more uncovered about what, everything the Astros did. I mean, just last Friday, I mean, you know, how quickly the news cycle was moving on this scandal. The fact that on the one hand, the commissioner has said it was a player-driven exercise, but then uh, the Wall Street Journal 
report reporting yeah. on Friday, you know, revealed that the role of the front office in kind of coming up with this scheme. And so now we're left asking, is the commissioner's office whitewashing um, or was they were they really only looking for, you know, essentially, I don't want to call A.J. Hinch or um, Jeff Lunau scapegoats because they're clearly guilty and, you know, they are the guiltiest as people in positions of leader, leadership, but they are not the only guilty people within the Astros front office from what we understand. And so the question is, you know, what are we going to do with them? Uh, what is baseball going to do going forward about the players, um, considering they have a immunity agreement? You know, I think fans will be immensely frustrated with the fact that not a lot, but um, we'll see. It's it's just such an unprecedented and unusual situation that I don't think we can anticipate what's going to happen next or, you know, who's going to get punished next. Well, I'll tell you, this is a I mean, I'm at signstealingscandal.com right now. That was the site that that where they where they put him forward. I'll 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 have to admit there was a lot more banging after the All Star break. If you look at this breakdown, Christina, how much how much de- on a scale of on a scale of one to ten? Ten equivalent to say collusion in the eighty two player strike. One, no damage at all. How much? How much damage is done to Major League Baseball's credibility as we have as we're going to the season by this by what we're seeing here with a cheating scandal coming out? Oh, I would have to put it, you know, like for the mainstream audience, not just like you know baseball obsessed people, like you know me and Don and maybe you, Carly. I don't know if like you know if you would call yourself baseball obsessed, but those of us who are totally baseball nuts might register, might say a little bit lower, but frankly, I, I have to put it at a seven or eight. I mean, it's not quite like, you know, game-breaking awful, um, people should go to prison, but it's pretty bad. And, you know, just in terms of, you know, really undermining, you know, I, you know, I know that as scandals go, if you were the in another sport, if you were the New England Patriots, this would just be another day ending and why. But in <laughs> baseball, this is this is pretty huge and it needs to be seen as huge. And I think the mainstream audience that doesn't live and die with baseball every day but sees this, you know, it's gonna turn people off. Well, that sound we hear means there's a break to be had. We take a little commercial break and when we come back. I'm going to ask Christina what her prediction is for the 2020 season. We'll be right back. And we're back in the transporter room. You are on the bridge. Carly Chardonnay Webb along with Don Ennis. And today we have from Baseball Perspectives and ESPN.com, Christina Carl, because this week is that beautiful time. Pitchers and catchers report. And Christina, I need to know two things. I mean, I want you to give me the all-out sabermetrician analysis on this. Who am I going to be seeing in October or November since we got the since we have the playoffs goes 50 rounds now? That's the first thing. <laughs> Who am I going to be seeing in the World Series? And secondly, how bad will my Kansas City Royals be this coming season? Um, I'll do the easy question first. The Royals, so you don't have to worry about whole lot of change on that front um it it for them it really just boils down to the young pitching and how much progress they make um if they hold on to if they (laughs) if they hold on to the the 
group of young, I mean, it's like, and I can't even really say young, but like, because not all of them are young, and some of them have been around for a while, but they keep that lineup core together this year, and the young pitching comes around, they could be really, I mean, you know, if you haven't been, you know, clubbed into submission by, you know, the second half, they could be a fun team to watch in, like, August or September, because they the pitchers round into shape. They could have an impact on what should be a really interesting AL Central like race and race for wild card spots because you have three competitive teams in that division. And, you know, if the Royals should pulse in the second half, that radically changes like what might happen with the White Sox and the Kings and the Indians. Um, so so eighty one and eighty one is not out of the question this year. <laughs> I'm not going there. Sorry, I, I can't see a break-even season. I think uh, I think uh, eighty-one and eighty-one would be. Um, yeah, I'm trying to think of how how to say this nicely, but um, no, don't don't be nice. Okay, I'm, well, I'm a big girl. It, I can take it. <laughs> it it won't happen. They will not hey. finish eighty-one and eighty-one. But um, but if you get in the mid seventies, that's a great year for this club. So. Hey, I'm hey, Buddy Biancalana is one of my favorite players. I understand Kiat. I understand Kiatic hopes when I see it. But no, hey, I'll take se- hey, I'll take seventy four wins. But now World Series, who you got? Oh well, see the the postseason is such a crapshoot. I mean, I last week we were having our our pre ESPN's like you know preseason kind of big powwow of everybody getting together, and we were. Some of us were kicking around what would be the ideal outcome of for the World Series, and uh, we were needling our Yankees. Those those among us who are Yankees fans with the image of the Yankees get to the World Series after all, because Garrett Cole was the move meant to achieve that above all else. And Garrett Cole pitches in Game Seven, and Garrett Cole pulls a full John Tudor nineteen eighty five. Eight runs in the first inning, blows up, loses Game Seven dramatically, freaks out on national television, punches a fan, all of the good stuff. All of that happens, and I mean a a fan, a cooling fan, not like some. I, I know what you mean. Fan. But just saying that for the record, in case anybody says, says I'm advocating players going into the stands and, and you know when they have a bad day at the office, but I'm not saying that. But. We get all of that. Garrett Cole has a horrible day, lives in Yankee infamy. People forgive and forget Ed Whitson. Dogs and cats falling in the sky. So that's my question to the Yankees fans that I have, like, in that room at that time. And I would have to all Yankees fans, if the Yankees get to Game 7 of the World Series and lose like that to anybody, and my speculation would be that the Dodgers are the most likely opponent, but say the Dodgers do it, does that represent a success for Yankees fandom or does that represent a failure? Because sure, they got to the big dance and they lost in the most humiliating way possible on national television. I think that that gives something for everybody. Isn't that something we want to see? We want to see something that really engages everybody and makes people excited about baseball. I look at that outcome as, you know, like, even though I have no love for the Dodgers, if the Dodgers did finally break through and win, that would be nice for them and nice for their fans. If the Yankees lost in such a spectacular fan, Yankees fans both get the gratification of finally getting back into the World Series. And then, just as, you know, Tony Womack 
you know, prove that even the greatest Yankees are mortal. We get this great moment of, yeah, the Yankees made it, but they also lost. <laughs> wow. Growing up in Queens, I inherited my father's love for the Mets. And of course, he passed on that uh, love for the Mets only because the Dodgers moved because O'Malley was a name we couldn't say in our house, only because we couldn't ever listen to the Giants win the pennant. The Giants win the pennant. My father would hit something if he heard that play <laughs> rebroadcast. But as a Mets fan, I have um, come to t- traditionally play the Family Guy clip, uh, the most famous Family Guy clip of the Mets. So here's that clip. So far, Halloween's a bigger letdown than being a Mets fan. Opening day, and here's the first pitch. And the season's over. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, yeah, that's 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 my tradition. Now I live in in New, in New England, so I will root for the Red Sox as long as they're not playing my Mets. Um, any team that beats the Yankees is my favorite team. Um, do you expect? Sorry, at, at speaking as somebody who was born in California and spent <laughs> thirty years in Chicago, or, I'm sorry, I wasn't born in California. I grew up in California. Um, and then spent 30 years in Chicago, all I would say about, like, Yankees and Red Sox is they're just branch campuses of the same people. So, like, you know, <laughs> there's the same thing. I don't care. I don't love either of them. If they lose badly, if my idea of a dream season is a programming nightmare from television's perspective in the sense that if the Yankees and Red Sox didn't make the playoffs, I'd be delighted because – and and we've had a few years like that, and that's yeah. wonderful. Yeah. And I, I would look, I would hope we got more of those. But I also understand that it would probably be a little bit bad for baseball if, you know, basically the whole Yankees, Red Sox engine went away, and you know those teams both sank into seventy win territory, or you know what I would, call, you know, as an A's fan or what a Royals fan might recognize as long period, like decades <laughs> at a time. You leave my Royals out of that and tell you the truth. If the Cardinals joined the Yankees and the Red Sox in 70 win territory, I'd be quite happy. Well, that might come sooner rather than later. So, you know, uh, I'm saying, I'm saying there is a Santa Claus, if that's your wish. So you're about to make a big there, move. Saying, you're, you're leaving Connecticut. You've just been here, what, a year or two, three years? I can't remember how long it's, it's been. been since. It, it's been a three year tour um in three years <laughs> well and and but they gave me my wish which was to move back into um a city with actual i mean apologies to the yard goats they're delightful and fun but um <laughs> i'm moving back into a city with major league baseball in it which for me is again i i grew up in northern california i spent 30 years in chicago being in a two-team market is just automatically where I feel like, you know, like I, I don't understand how the rest of the country survives because if you don't have a team, two team market, you can't go to baseball every day, basically like for six months. Um, and that's, that's just wrong. I, I want to be able to go to baseball every day for six straight months. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I love living in Florida. I've lived in Florida three times and my favorite season is this season where I could go and see, you know, spring training baseball like a dozen different games at different places. And I was wondering how much time have you spent in, uh, in either Arizona or Florida uh, enjoying spring training? Is that something you've done? I much prefer uh, Arizona. I mean, it basically, it's an, not even an hour's drive end to end to make it to every ballpark in the Cactus League. 
Um, so you can get to multiple games. Like if you wanted to see a day game and then a nightcap, that's easy, easily done. Um, if you have the means, of course, because spring training is no longer as cheap as it was, say, 20 years ago or 30 so, years ago. Very true. But, um, you know, it's it's almost as expensive as the real thing at this point. But the other advantage, of course, uh, Arizona has over Florida is tacos. So, you know, which, <laughs> hey, tacos are important. So uh, Florida, not known for, like, necessarily having great cuisine all over the state, whereas you most um, Arizona is what I mean. Maybe I, I hate to uh, trash Connecticut on my way out the door, but um, it is kind of a taco desert. So for me, yeah. moving to California is definitely uh, that's another feature of the move that we are very excited about is to move into some place where we can actually live the live the dream of a taco truck on every corner. Well, you know what Keith Olbermann said: the best view of Bristol is, is in your rear view mirror. <laughs> That was that was me not too long ago. <laughs> That's right. You two have both got Bristol in your uh, in your DNA, but uh, it's nice to shake it loose. I'm 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 gonna let Carly ask the last question because we're gonna wrap it up. I want to get into the sci-fi realm. So, Christina, if you're grooving on some sci-fi right now, what are you grooving on? Uh, we're actually um, we're going through the new season of Lost in Space. Oh, I love it. Good show. I I you gotta love. I mean, basically. Um, any show with, um, oh God, Molly, uh, I forget the last, it's not Molly Shannon, because. Um, From SNL? No. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is not, but playing the mother in uh, Lost in Space, uh, Molly Parker, uh, is wonderful in pretty much everything. I mean, people might remember her better from Deadwood, but um, she is reliably awesome. And so for me, she's kind of like the the, the center character of that show although the whole cast is doing great things and the whole i mean you know at the end of the most recent episode you know i mean one that i was watching where uh i guess spoilers like daddy has fallen down a well and uh lassie wasn't there to uh rescue him (laughs) (laughs) so so daddy has fallen down a well and uh their adopted daughter uh is basically responsible for saving him and and does and so they do a lot of you know flashbacks to when uh when she was adopted and oh i cried uh, well, my it, eyes it, out i cried my I eyes did out t- that, that makes three of us so, but um and that's the kind of science fiction that again when it has that level of power um in storytelling as well as imagination uh it just is a reflect another reminder that science fiction is not just you know rocket ships and Robots well, or Trek fests and pew pew and you know like um, Klingon mastering Klingon orthography or any of that stuff, which is fine. People are allowed to do that, but it's at the at, in, at its at, at its soul, it's great storytelling. I well, agree. That's that makes three of us there. I've always believed that good that good science fiction tells more about where we are now and where we're going. And by the way, just want to send a little shout out since we're talking about Lost in Space. I love the twist they put on Dr. Smith with Parker Posey. Oh, she's great. As a fan of the original show, as a fan of the original Lost in Space, I really like the way they did that. (laughs) No, she is so, so deliciously evil. Um, And selfish and narcissistic and evilly. She's actually a genius when it comes to evil. Like, she's really smart evil. 
She's not like a oh, dummy. Yeah, no, it's, you know? it's, yeah. So, and it's, again, kind of fun because she's not, um, she's not the, the typical villain who has like tons of power. You know, she's very manipulative, clever, figuring things out. And, and you can understand her root motivation, which is to survive. Um, but she's done so many horrible things to so many people uh, along hmm. the way that, you know, you also have to say at what cost um, hmm. that she's doing this. So. I don't know. It's yeah. it's a great show for all sorts of reasons, but that's what we're watching of late. And I'm just going to mention, since we've talked about this, Carly, Star Trek Picard, it's the fourth episode this week. Please catch up. It's so wonderful. It's so great. It's a little slow. Hey. I will admit it's a little slow at the beginning, but it's got great See, I'm not worried about that. I, if it, if people are complaining that something is slow, then I'm going to like it even more, especially for science fiction. Because I think I agree. Yeah. we get well, so totally looking at, forward to it. Yeah. The other well, thing, I, though, yeah. just to jump yep. in, because the other no, thing that is you. amazing uh, that, of course, is rolling out right now slowly but surely is uh, the latest season of Doctor Who, which, again, yes, the new Doctor I'm behind on that. Lover. I've only seen two. Oh, it, the, last, the last year's season, the first season with her was amazing and had some of the most amazing episodes of any of the ever since like they brought doctor who back all of the various incarnations you know we've loved them but last year's show like the show on um just i mean they really went back to the show's roots as far as like really giving a people window into history kind of being a civics lesson but also then you know, talking about agency and what you can do uh, to make the world better. I mean, so it's still got that upbeat, that angle that the doctor usually has. Uh, what I think we haven't seen so far with the, uh, the the doctor as a woman, I think, is we haven't seen the, um, the capacity for, for anger that, that some of the doctors in the past have shown us that um, and and vengefulness that sometimes is sort of like, wow, you know, sometimes the doctor can be really scary. Um, we haven't seen that this time around. So like maybe we'll, we'll get into that if we have a longer story arc, but I think they've been doing a really good job of avoiding getting, you know, too trapped with some of the longer arcs that previous seasons, of the doctor have done where they basically make it all about fighting with the Daleks or all about fighting against uh, Cybermen. So it's been, in one way, very creative in getting back to its roots. In another way, I'm kind of looking forward to what more they're going to do with her. And on that note, we look forward to hearing, seeing, reading more Christina Carl, ESPN.com. Thank you for being in the transporter room. Carly set the coordinates for Bristol. You know where they are. Send I know. <laughs> hey, thanks for being with us. You got to come. Hey, you got to come back again. I, Let's say around the all-star break and see where we're at. Let's see if I'm on that 74 win pace or not. Hey, you have a great season. Fire it's that great the- time of year. Thank you, ladies. Mr. Tula won the beam down. Listeners, come back tomorrow for another rousing edition of Outsports LGBTQ Pro Wrestling Podcast, LGBT in the Ring. Host Brian Bell welcomes pro wrestler Effie to the show to discuss the state of the industry. LGBTQ representation in the ring, his ability to connect to audiences of all kinds, and his upcoming Big Gay Brunch in Tampa in April. Download the show, just like this one, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and so much more. See you, Christina. Been great seeing you. And, of course, Dawn, great to be back at our new day. 
Got a new day now. This is going to be fun. Back on the weekday. Steady as she goes.